um, life has a way of, uh, of wearing us down, doesn't it? Um, and and that's, why, that's why Sunday worship is so important. Um, that I, I don't know if I could go uh, two weeks without, without worship. Um, so anyway, we, we in fact do live in, in difficult times. One of my, one of my purposes of these last two weeks is number one is, 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 as I pray, this is not a time for us to be discouraged, to be dismayed. Um, this is a time for us to continue to fight. Uh, Jamie shared with us on Wednesday night some, some very distressing and just pure evil that is uh, coming out of our state legislature, um, uh, controlled by the Democrats. Uh, and and I, I've always been hesitant to say this, but I think we've reached a point where I can say it with... Uh, I don't know anybody who professes to know Christ could ever support that party. Um I think we're, we're, we're very close for not already, already there to say that if you are a Democrat or you vote Democratic, it's sin. And you need to repent. How do we face difficult times and difficult circumstances in our lives, not just in a broader sense, but even in our own lives? Uh, it's interesting that it seems so often we opt for one of two things. When, when we face really overwhelmingly difficult times or, or difficult circumstances in our lives, things that we just have no, seemingly have no control over. Well, a lot of Christians resort to, to what I call fatalistic resignation. And it's really interesting because they, they really think that this is a biblical stance. Okay. They say, well, God is sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. And that sounds real orthodox. That sounds, uh, you know, that sounds really sound. But it's interesting because that's not how the Bible tells us to respond to difficult times. The Bible unequivocally and clearly proclaims God as being sovereign in control of everything. But the Bible never therefore says, just sit back and relax and let God do his thing, uh, as we're going to see this morning. So one, one way that, that Christians often face difficult times or difficult circumstances that they feel are beyond their control is just, just, just resignation. God's going to do what he's going to do. <laughs> you know. the, the other one is pessimism. It's kind of the opposite of that. This is, well, God's not going to do anything about it. So, so, you know, what, what, there's nothing I can do. He's not, even if I pray, he's not going to do anything about it. He's not going to change anything. Again, th- this can sound orthodox um, and, and, and biblical and sound, but I would submit that it is not. God does not want us to, res- to, to respond to our world and to our circumstances with fatalistic resignation nor with some kind of pietistic pessimism. Um, but instead, he wants us to respond in what I'm calling prevailing prayer, prayer that prevails. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 11, and, and this is not the only place that this 
that Jesus teaches this kind of prayer, that the Bible teaches this kind of prayer. But I think that um, in Luke 11, we have a good description or explanation of prevailing prayer. Uh, Luke 11, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 13. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he'd finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. and Forgive us our sins, for we also... For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend. And goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? The implication is obviously no. Or if he asked for an egg, will he not give him a scorpion, will he? Of course not. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Prevailing prayer, prayer that is effectual, prayer that overcomes, prayer... That never quits is really the focus this morning. But Jesus begins with a foundation for for prayer in verses 1 through 4. And he begins um, that verse 1 talks about the disciples asking the Lord to teach us to pray. Now, there are a lot of things I read in the Bible and and I say, I wish I could have seen that. The parting of the Red Sea. I, I would have loved to have been there. I would have I would have loved to have seen that. Um, I would have loved to have seen the, the remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? I, I, I'm just baffled by how, how did that happen? Did, it, did the fish multiply in the bowl or did when he broke it and put it in the bowl? Did it, I, I would have loved to have seen that. There, there are a lot of things I, I, I wish I, I could have seen, but one of the things I wish I could have heard was I wish I could have heard Jesus pray. We have his words, many of his prayers and his words. Certainly we have that, that, that uh, heart-wrenching prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I, I just wish I, I could have heard him pray. And I think, I think there's something about the way Jesus prayed that prompted his disciples to say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I think the invocation is like you. Teach us to pray like you pray. I mean, they were schooled, many of them were schooled and. And in the you know rabbinic Judaism of their day and how they would pray and there must have been something well there was something uniquely different about Jesus' prayer that they said Lord teach us to pray not teach us how to preach not teach us how to heal how to cast out demons but Lord teach us how to pray of all the things that Jesus said he 
he begins, or he tells them, he really lays the foundation with what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now, you'll notice in this account in Luke, those of us who are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, it, this is somewhat truncated. Uh, and, and that is not a problem. Um, although, you know, obviously the text just reset this, and, and some of our later manuscripts uh, include uh, Matthew 6 here. Um, but if you would turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be using the outline from, Matt, from Matthew 6, which is a little fuller. Um, one of the things that, um, that, the Bible, that, that critics of the Bible uh, point to in terms of contradictions or, or mistakes is simply uh, not recognizing that Jesus probably taught these things on many different occasions. And there's no reason why he would have to do it exactly the same way each time. Um, we don't know why uh, Luke recorded what he did um, and left out what he did, but he did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But, but nevertheless, we'll use, we'll use Matthew's account because it is a little fuller um, than the account that Luke gives us. Uh, the foundation for prevailing prayer begins with praise. Much like we did today. Lord, I praise you because, or, or I praise you for. And I think this is interesting. By the way, the Lord's Prayer is not meant to be a prayer that we we, we pray in rote, although I, I prayed it in rote this morning. I, I remember when I was playing football um, at University of New Mexico, every time before we'd, we'd go out on the field, the whole team would gather around and we'd say the Lord's Prayer. And I was always somewhat offended by that, to be honest with you. Uh, because I knew that with 95% of those guys, he, God was not their father in heaven. Um, but in any event, this is a, a very common prayer that many pray and wrote. And I don't think that that's why Jesus gave it to us. I think he gives us an outline, uh, a foundation uh, for praying. And he begins with praise. It's a reminder of who we are praying to. He says, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or... or um, Honored would, that your name. I, I pray that your name would be honored, that your name would be glorified. Name being your person, may his name be honored and glorified. And I think that in, in essence, too, when we pray, we could pray. May I, may, may my prayer honor and glorify you. May the things that I pray about bring honor and glory to you in some way, and, and in some sense. So really. We begin our praying with, with a recognition of who we are praying to and who he is, his nature, his person. And really, it's the basis and the confidence for anything else that we pray. The fact that our Father is in heaven and his name is hallowed, it is, it is glorified, it is holy. So we begin with praise. That, our, that our, any prevailing prayer, and really any prayer we do, should begin with a recognition of God and who he is, and we praise him for who he is. The second one is submission. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And why do I say submission? Because we know that his kingdom will be done, and his will will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. So what we are praying is, in essence is that I personally want to submit to your, your kingdom and to your will. May your will and your kingdom be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. Not just me personally, but in my world. Oh, Father, I pray that your will and your kingdom would come. If there's ever a time for us to pray that, it is now. God, I pray that your kingdom would come now, that your will would be done now. We, 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 we have talked about, we see the, the Bible teaching the progressive fulfillment of his will and his kingdom. But in the midst of that, we are to pray to submit to that will, to submit to that kingdom, that, that we are subjects of his kingdom. So we begin with praise. We acknowledge our submission to him. Third is provision. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, um, I've talked to several of, of you. Um, this is interesting. This is a side note on the challenges of translation. Uh, uh, Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, bread for them was staple. That was their staple food. It, you know, uh, that was their base. What do you do when, when a culture, when bread is a luxury? Luxury. Um, in the Philippines, for instance, uh, rice is their staple food. Bread is kind of a luxury. So do, do, do you translate this as give us this day our daily bread or would you, for them in their... And then Tagalog, would you say, give us this day our daily rice? He's changing God's word. No, we're, we're just trying to convey the right meaning. In any event, he says, this, give us this day our daily bread. This was their staple. This was their base. And it's interesting how he says daily. I often wondered about that. It's not monthly, not yearly. Now, I don't think it means that we're not to pray for the future. Um, but I think probably what he's getting at is that our focus, our, our real focus needs to be today. If, if you look, we're in Matthew chapter 6, if you look at verse 34, he, he, he does the same thing when it comes to worry. So, so not, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble its own. And I love how the King James phrase that, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Listen, God's not going to give us grace for tomorrow. Because we don't need grace for tomorrow, because tomorrow hasn't come yet. He's not going to give us grace for a year from now, because we don't need grace for a year from now. We need grace for today. And I think that's, that's the sense of pray for our daily bread. I need your provision today. I'm asking for you to provide for me today. I am, I am absolutely, completely dependent upon you Today, while we pray for the certainly pray for the future, we live in today, and this is hard for me. This is this is one that's really hard for me, because I have a hard time living for today. I have a hard time trusting just for today, uh, because that verse thirty four creeps in. My worry about the future comes in, and Jesus would say, "Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof." Um, don't worry about tomorrow. Pray for your daily needs today. We pray for provision. Next is confession. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I say confession because 
In 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, and I've said this often that, uh, you know, I, I stop usually during sometime during the week and I ask myself, how many, how many times have I confessed my sin this week? Um, number two is maybe even harder, not just asking... And not just asking for forgiveness or confessing my sin, but forgiving those who have transgressed against me. Um, it's awfully hard to ask God to forgive you when you haven't forgiven someone else. In fact, Jesus told a parable about that. The, the, the need in prayer for confession of sin. And again, I, I don't think that we are to go on a, a fishing trip inside our soul, but that we trust that God will, will, will bring to mind those things that, that we need to confess. And protection, when he says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then, of course, some manuscripts end with, for for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lead us not into temptation. Now, remember I I said that sometimes we we are in danger of of trifling with with words. And it's interesting to me how we try to, uh, how, how many have tried to understand this. Whenever we face, whenever we read a difficult text, oftentimes the best we can do is rule out what it can't mean. In other words, where the Bible is clear, let's be clear. Where the Bible is not clear, let's not try to be so dogmatically clear that we start changing the language. Clearly, he says, do not lead us to temptation. What can't that mean? Uh, Turn to James chapter 1. We know what it can't mean. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So, we we interpret Matthew 6, the the difficult verse, in light of James 1, 13-14, that is painfully clear, saying that God does not tempt anyone to evil. So, what is the solution? Well, if we, we, one option is to take James 1, 13-14, that that Matthew 6 is not saying that he is going to actually tempt us, but... In fact, there may be times when he leads us into temptation. Um, much we, we look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. What did the Spirit do to Jesus? Led him into the desert to be tempted. So I, I don't know that, that we have to be embarrassed or, or uh, try to explain this away too much. In some sense, we may be led into temptation. But in so doing, it is not evil for God to do that, and he is not tempting us himself. The best I can come up with is, in fact, that he does and can lead us into such situations in which we will be tempted. But in so doing, he is not the one tempting it, nor is it evil for him to do that. But the focus really is on protection. And he says, uh, uh, deliver us 
from evil. This or this could be the evil one. Could be what's called a substantival. Either way, I don't think it really matters. We pray for protection. Um, Job one. Remember when 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 God and Satan comes into into, into the adversary, the, the accuser comes into God's presence and says, and God, and, and, and God starts bragging on Job. And if Job only knew, he'd be going, God, you know, look, look at my servant Job. Look how righteous and holy and upright he is. And, and what does Satan say to him? Say, yeah, it's easy because you put a hedge of protection around him. And everything he does prospers. And everything he does, you know, he's got, a, his kids are all go to Christian college and, you know, and he, all his bills are paid. And he doesn't have any problem with his shoulders or knees or... Doesn't use a need a tricycle, and he said, "Of course, you put a you put a hedge of protection around him." And I, and I think that there is a, there there is a very clear sense in which we need to begin including that in our prayer. That oh God, I pray that you protect me. And the, the implication is not that he won't. Again, we get back to what well, God's going to do. He's going to do. He's going to protect. No, he's a, pray that he deliver me, deliver us, and deliver our loved ones from the evil one. So as we can see, that, that prevailing prayer, well, any prayer really is multifaceted, is it not? It's, it's not just uh, sitting down and asking him for stuff. It's com- pretty comprehensive and, and very multifaceted. And, and, and uh, when we come back to our application, I'm going to encourage us to begin implementing uh, these things in, in our prayer. It doesn't mean that every single time we pray, we have to, we have to walk through these things, but it, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea. So he lays the foundation, but then really the heart of the passage is what I call the manner of prevailing prayer. How do you pray? Beginning, go back now, if you would, to Luke chapter 11, um, verse 5. Because after he gets done telling them, explaining them what we call the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11, 5 said, Then he said to them, in other words, immediately following, so I take it that what he is saying afterwards is, to, is, a, is, is a companion to what he has just said. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend. He goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now, this seems odd to us. right? I mean, in the day of Circle K and King Supers and 7-Eleven uh, and in a culture that is not driven, that, that is not hospitality centered. In other words, their culture, hospitality was everything. So for us, we're thinking, what's the big deal? You know, we probably, you got plenty of food in the refrigerator. Uh, your friend probably, if he came to you at midnight, would not say, hey, you got anything to eat? Uh, can I have something to eat? Well, it usually would not be a problem for us. We just, you know, pull something out of the refrigerator and cook it up. For them, that's, that's a big deal. So in, in, a, in a culture that is, that, that is, in terms of honor and hospitality, this was a big deal. And it's interesting that Jesus picked the parable, and in that he uses the most unreasonable request at the most unreasonable time. And it's not to say that this is what God is like, but really this is what we would call a lesser to greater argument, saying that if this guy will do it, how much more will your Heavenly Father do it? So the friend comes to him at night and says, I have no, I haven't, don't have any food, uh, King Supers is closed, I, I desperately need to, to provide for my guest. And the guy inside says, don't bother me. The door has already been shut 
my children and I are in bed. They probably were sleeping in the same room. Um, he'd have to step over Tina and Johnny and, and uh, go away. It's late. Um, I, ca- I can't give you anything. Verse 8, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, but because his friend, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And what's the, what's the implication of verse 8? That the guy kept doing what? Please, can, can I have some bread? Can I have some... I need, I need three loaves. And finally, he gets up and he gives him the three loaves. And Jesus says in his parable... Not because he's his friend, because probably he's not his friend anymore at that point. Um, but because of, from the New American Standard, uh, is persistence. Um, importunity. It's hard to translate into English. This is a word that's hard to translate into English. The, the, the sense of it is um, a, a request that borders on annoying. I think a probably uh, a good colloquial term for us today would be a pest. Stop being such a pest. You know, children can do that. They, they can just be pests. Yeah, can I have that? Can I, can I, can I have that? And finally, you give them the sugar, you give them the candy. Why? Stop annoying me. I just give in. And that's the sense of it. So what is he saying about our manner of praying? I think that there is that there needs to be, and not necessarily in any prayer, but it's certainly in a prayer that that we need and sense to prevail is a sense of desperation. If we come to God and and we we pray half-heartedly, um, I don't think that we should expect anything to really happen. God, you know, if you think about it, if you got a little time. You know, it would be kind of nice for you to do that. But if you don't, that's okay, too. You know, whatever. No. What, what did this guy do? He, he, I need some bread. I need some bread. There, there, was, there was a desperation in his praying, in, in his request. And I think that uh, far too often, most of our prayers, even when we do pray, even in those, those rare times, if statistics or polls or whatever you want to call it. Most Christians do not pray. But even when we do, rarely is there ever a heart of desperation. This last week, I guess now it's been maybe a week before, I always think it was last week, I read an article of a of a tragic car accident in, in West Texas, just the other side of the New Mexico border. And, and uh, they were golf they were students from the University of Southwest, which is in Hobbs, my wife's hometown. And, and a truck, there was a two-lane road, and a truck coming the other way apparently had one of the tires was a spare, this large pickup, and a 13-year-old was driving. And crossed over at the last minute, head-on, and killed six or nine, just a little nine, nine total, six of the students. And, and, and when you pray under those circumstances, you're praying with desperation. When you lose your job, you pray with desperation. Um, and I'm suggesting to us that even in, in, in times of, of not extreme issues like that, but I think that we need to have more of a heart of, of desperation when we pray. Because if we don't, it kind of reveals that there are some things I feel like I can take care of. 
I think all prayer should be a form of desperation. But second of all, I think, too, determination. And then the two kind of go together, don't they? They're in really the heart of the passage. His importunity, this, this pressing solicitation to the point of being annoying. Now, keep your mark here. Turn to Luke chapter 18. We see another, Jesus told another parable of this desperate and this, this, this spirit of, of determination. Luke 18. Now he's telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray not to lose heart, not to get discouraged, not to give up. Saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection for my opponent. They, widows were easy prey in that day. They had no status, no power, no, no one to intervene for them. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continuing coming, she will give me a black eye. It's kind of the, was kind of the metaphor. What a pest. Get rid of this woman. Again, Jesus is not telling this parable that that's what God's like, but he's, it's lesser to greater. If, if this evil judge who just gets rid of her because of her being a pest will respond to her request, how much more will our Heavenly Father? Again, he said, uh, yet because this widow bothers me, her persistence, her determination, uh, it's getting annoying, I've got to get rid of her. Again, I, I, as I was reading this passage, I thought, how often do I pray like that? Um, there are times that, that I do, but, but not enough, I suspect. This, this sense of determination. Remember Genesis 32, when Jacob was wrestling with the angel. Remember, and there's one... Well, let, let, let's... Turn, we got nothing, nowhere else to go right now, right? Genesis 32. Let's. let's see here. Uh, 24. 32 24. Then Jacob was left alone. Remember, he has run away from Esau. He's scared of Esau, he ripped him off. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. No PT. There was no physical therapist to go to. Um, Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he, Jacob, said, I will not go unless you bless me. That determination. That wrestling, that uh, that spirit of I will not stop coming to you until I get that I receive what I'm praying and asking for. It's interesting, isn't it? Interesting, just these two stories, particularly Luke 18. That is not not only is that not offensive to God, he he invites that, he encourages that. He encourages that kind of prayer. He doesn't encourage resignation. 
He doesn't encourage pessimism. He encourages pestering, annoying, desperate, determined praying. That's what pleases him. In fact, he follows up verse 9 of Luke. So I say to you, so here's the conclusion, here's the the application, Jesus' application to this parable. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. These are all in what we call present tense. Keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking, and it will be open to you. What has God said to us? He's going to give us whatever we ask for? It's interesting because he follows up with, Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Will he give him a snake instead of a fish? Will he? Won't know. Or if he asks for an egg, will he not give him a scorpion? No. And I think the, the, the think of it this way. Think of the opposite. If um, if a son asked his father for a snake, would he give him a snake? No. What would he give him? A fish. If his son asked for a scorpion, would he give him? A, would, would he give him a scorpion? No. He wouldn't give him a scorpion. What does he say? He'd give him bread or. or an egg. I think, I think the, the point of these verses is saying that we may ask for something that ultimately may be harmful to us. He will never give us anything that's harmful to us. Um, I'm looking in the room here. I don't see anyone here who's omniscient. Okay, yeah. There's only one who knows all things. And not just all things, but all contingencies. Not just what we pray for, but all the contingencies of that prayer. And I think the point is he's saying, yes, we, we come to him and we, we, we ask and we, we seek. But we understand that, that he is going to give us that which is good for us. But we can't get past the, the, the teaching that keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And what? God might give you what you ask for. No, the promise is he will. Now, it's at this point that many commentators and even pastors uh, give, give this text the death of a thousand qualifications. Um, and I'm not going to do that because we're all grown-ups. Uh, I may pray for a Maserati. Okay, these are, these, are, these are kind of silly, extreme examples. It's interesting to me, and I've said this from time to time, it's a shame that we have allowed the name it, claim it crowd to rob us of the biblical teaching that God hears and answers our prayer. We don't want to be associated with that group. And so we come to this, he says, ah, you know, we keep asking, he'll give, give us a request. Yeah, but you know, and then, then all the qualifications come in because we don't want to be associated with the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it group. There's so much in the Bible where God says, I'll answer your prayers. In fact, the Bible gives us indication that there are many things that we don't have because we didn't ask Him. You have not because you asked not. I don't know what those things are before I pray, but the implication of you have not because you asked not, that if I would have asked, I would have what? Had. I would have gotten it. 
Again, we allow the resignation and the pessimism to, st- to seep in. No, he's not going to give me what I asked for. No, we never admit this. Right? We, none of us would admit this out loud. But in the back of our minds, inside, we're going, I know God's not going to answer this, but I, as a good Christian, I need to pray. God doesn't honor that kind of prayer. That's not prevailing prayer. Prevailing prayer is desperate and it's determined and it leads us into the third, which is the mindset in prevailing prayer, which is 11 through 13. Again, suppose one of you have a father who's asked for a son and this is what what I would call expectation. The prevailing prayer is expectant and it's confident. And it's interesting that he says in 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts underlying good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give and what would you expect to come next? Good gifts. Don't, if you then being even not a good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to you? But what does he say? Odd. He says, your heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now it's interesting, the parallel passage in Matthew 7, 11 uh, is good things. It does... Matthew records that it is good things. Now, now I know that, that preachers and pastors aren't supposed to do this, but I'm confounded what Jesus would mean by this when he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And we can, we can speculate and we can come up with all different kinds of ideas. But I think the gist of it is good things. See, I want to challenge us. If, you know, if you're already praying this kind of prayer, you're already engaged in prevailing prayer where, where there's an element of desperation and determination and persistence and, and you're praying and you never quit, you never grow tired, you never waver, you never give up, then this is for the rest of us. I want to challenge us to develop prevailing prayer. Let, let, me, let me say one thing. And although, although it's not really part of the, t- the, 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 the parable and, and what Jesus is trying to say, because he doesn't address really how long we pray. But I was thinking this week as I, as I was reading and praying and saying, you know, <clears throat> there are things I do around the house that take me 30 minutes, 45 minutes. No problem. No problem. I can read for an hour. I can read the Bible for over an hour at a time, longer. No problem. Why can't I sit down and pray for an hour? Why don't I sit down and pray for an hour? Think, think, think this week about all the activities you were involved in. I'm not talking about work. Any little things you did around the house, maybe. Maybe you, maybe you went to a store and you spent 30 minutes at the store. Or TV. Or you streamed a movie. You watched a movie for an hour. We watch a movie for an hour and a half. When was the last time you ever prayed for an hour and a half? Have you asked yourself why is that? And I'm not. I'm not pointing a finger at you. I'm pointing a finger at me. I, I mean, this is what the Lord has convicted me of. Why can't? Well, you know, I need to fix the sink. We don't need to pray. Is that what we're saying? So, 
I want to challenge us. I know that maybe some of you are saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, the Lord said, could you not tarry with me for one hour? I'm going to, I'm going to start praying for one hour a day. Um, it's interesting that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, you know, could you not, could you not stay awake for one hour and pray with me? He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So this is my advice to you. Your spirit probably is very willing, but your flesh is very, very weak. So don't start with an hour. Start somewhere shorter. Start small. Be consistent. Um, And I would suspect that most of us have something in our lives that's important enough to pray with desperation and determination. If nothing else, what's going on around us is. Start small. Be consistent. Use a prayer guide. You know, have a little notebook. Um, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I, I have one. Um, and then gradually add time. Make, make a commitment to gradually add time. Um, so, so again, I, I say that almost as an aside because the, the text really doesn't talk about address how long. Uh, um, but but it, it does... If it seems to me that prevailing, determined, desperate prayer is something that um, we need to be willing to spend some time at. If not in each individual setting, certainly over, over a period of time. Uh, so again, I, I, as we face difficult circumstances in our world and difficult circumstances in our families and our, uh, our lives, um, let's, not, let's not resort to... Uh, you know, fatalistic resignation or blind pessimism. Um, but let's let's in, let's really do what the what the scriptures encourage us to do, and that is to engage in prevailing prayer, and to really expect and be confident that God is going to respond to us, and that we we like this man at midnight uh, become a pest. We don't give up, we don't lose heart, and we pray and we pray and we pray until we get what we've asked for, to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking. Let's pray, indeed. Father, we, we are, indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know, deep in, I know truly in the heart of every true believer is a desire to pray, a desire for this kind of prayer, but our flesh is weak, our, our enemy is deceptive, um, and, it, and, and quite frankly, prayer is hard. It's warfare. It's, it's, it's difficult. And oftentimes, Father, we confess simply just our unbelief in its efficacy that it doesn't really work. And so forgive us of our unbelief. Forgive, forgive us of our, of our pessimism. Um, Lord, we want to truly believe you that you are a good Father who who delights in blessing his children with good things and that clearly the the overwhelming teaching of the scriptures in light of your sovereignty and your omnipotence uh, is in fact you, we are encouraged to continually draw before you and press you and press upon you in desperation and determination, prevailing prayer. For that is what pleases you, and ultimately that's what will honor you. 
as you respond to our prayers. We thank you. We love you. We are committed to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?